Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, we are here today with Professor Dr. Tom Hansen, who is in the Department of Military History, to talk a little bit about his background and experiences. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. All right, so let's start by talking about your uh, academic background. So tell us a little bit about your studies and uh, what, what you did your degrees in. Well, I went to The Ohio State University. I am one of the reinforced battalion of military officers who got their PhD under the direction of Alan Millett. Um, I went uh, shortly after commanding a rifle company, uh, so I was probably not socially ready to go back into graduate school, uh, but uh, Dr. Millett uh, also proved to be a good mentor and helped me make that transition and uh, really steered me toward uh, the ultimate topic, but without actually directing me to do a specific research uh, Area. Okay, and what, what research area did you did you put yourself into? Well, as I said, I came from uh, commanding a rifle company in the U.S. Army, and so my focus had been on training for the last several years. And I, I got to graduate school, and I knew I wanted to do a topic on the U.S. Army in the 20th century, and so I was looking for topics. I looked at uh, you know, mobilization in 1917 and 1940. Uh, I looked at training post-Vietnam. Those were interesting, but then uh, in a conversation with my father shortly after I got to graduate school, he, he started talking about what things had been like for him in Korea. And then I started doing some digging and, and realized that there was an almost universal condemnation of the U.S. Army's performance in 1950 when, mm -hmm. it was sent, when the 8th Army was sent from Japan to Korea to, to combat the North Korean invasion. And even as a budding professional historian at the time, I understood that when everybody is singing from the same song, same same hymnal, something's not right. And Somebody's so, got to start their vision of school, right? Right. And you know, Dr. Millett said, well, sure, why don't you go look at that? You know, it, it, it was kind of a flippant remark. I think he was, <laughs> as, as a former Marine, he was pretty dismissive of the Army, but uh, he said, sure, go take a look at that and see what you find. Yeah. So yeah. I, I did come up with uh, a, a workable thesis, and that developed into a, both a master's and then a, a Ph.D., dissertation. Yeah, I ended up with a fairly similar uh, response and, and subsequent topic from my director, um, Dr. Mike Legere at UNT, so I, I, I understand, <laughs> certainly. Um, so you, you've mentioned a couple times you also have military experience, so could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, my military experience and my academic experience are deeply intertwined. Um, I uh, majored in history at the University of Minnesota as an undergraduate. I graduated in 1987. Uh, applied to graduate schools and, you know, despite having above average grades, did not get in at the time. Hmm. You know, I, I won't name the schools for uh, fear <laughs> of uh, offending the innocent, but uh, I, I was kicking around looking for something to do. Uh, I had had a series, as a typical undergraduate, I had a series of meaningful and demeaning jobs to <laughs> pay my tuition and I didn't want to go back to that. So I said, okay, well, the, the Army has this thing called the Army College Fund, so I will join the Army. Um, get some money put aside and then you'll reapply to graduate school. Uh, I got into the Army and found out that I, I really enjoyed it. 
which may say something about my personality. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so I, I had to put my academic career off for a little while, but then uh, I was recruited to go to West Point and teach uh, history at the academy following company command. And so that allowed me to reunite the two uh, axes of my professional life, as, as it were. And so I became a professional military historian for the military. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's un- unlike uh, many of our faculty, you, you have been in multiple positions here at Fort Leavenworth. So can you talk us through your, your professional academic experience here? Yes, I I tell people I'm the bad penny that never goes away at Fort Leavenworth. (laughs) I've been all over, uh, both in academic and non-academic positions. Uh, As far as academics, uh, I was the last director of the U.S. Army Combat Studies Institute from 2013 to 2015. Uh, The institute still exists, but under a different name and with a slightly different mission. And for our listeners, the CSI is essentially the predecessor organization to the current Department of Military History. Um, yes. Uh, in 1979, uh, Colonel Bill Stoft received the mission to create a dedicated history department for the Command and General Staff College, and, and that was named CSI. It was then broken off as a separate entity uh, early in the 2000s uh, for a number of reasons, mm-hmm. uh, but it is the original Department of Military History. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I had left that position and gone to Hawaii to work at U.S. Army Pacific as a staff officer, and then uh, my friend Jim, Dr. Jim Wilbanks, who was the director of the military history department here, called and said, hey, I'm, I'm dropping my retirement paperwork, and if you're interested, you should apply. I applied. Uh, I marshaled sufficient backing to be selected for the job, and I got it, and so I showed up here in January of 2017 as the director. Uh, with the understanding that my wife, who was also an active duty officer, would be released by her branch to come to a position at Fort Leavenworth in the summer of 2017. Well, anybody who's served in the Army more than a day knows that the truth from your assignment officer has an expiration date. (laughs) It's truth as of that day. It's not truth for all time. And so summer of 2017 came along and they said, no, we need you to, they told my wife, we need you to go to Indianapolis and be chief of staff for this new unit that we're creating. But then we'll send you to Leavenworth. And the next summer they said, no, you're doing such a good job there. We need you to go from Indianapolis to Washington, D.C. and work in the Army Budget Office. And at that point, since we were both in uniform but on different, had been on different deployment cycles, we had lived together for six months out of the previous 40. Mm. And so, um, very reluctantly, uh, because the Army was not going to release her from her obligation, and she had several times turned down assignments so that we could stay together previously. I said, okay, I will, I will leave the department, and I will, go, I will accompany you to Indianapolis for this next year, and then we'll go to D.C. It didn't work out that way um, for a number of reasons, and so shortly after that, in the summer of 2019, I came back and I was hired as a professor at uh, the School for Advanced Military Studies. Mm-hmm. And so I taught the Senior Service College seminar at SAMS, the Advanced Strategic Leadership Studies Program, uh, for three years, where we had officers who were selected for a, a Senior Service College experience who elected to come to Fort Leavenworth to do the ASLSP program for a year, and then they would spend another year as directors of the majors. Uh, planning course. Um, but 
I've always had my eye on coming back to the department. Uh, this is truly home, and so when Dr. Cotter offered me the opportunity to come back, I jumped at it, and so now you're stuck with me again. <laughs> well, um, I, I wanted to dive into something you mentioned earlier, um, going back to kind of your research side. You mentioned that you had heard from your father about his experience in Korea. So when you were getting into your post-World War II Korea research, were there still enough veterans around to do the kind of typical oral history, or were you more a documents-based uh, research approach? Originally it was documents-based, but then um, in talking with my father, and then um, we were both members of the life members of the VFW and so whenever I went home I would always accompany him to a meeting I met several veterans there as well and then locally I also was able to contact several uh, in Ohio and that turned into a, a nationwide network of people who were feeding me information about their experiences and their perceptions uh, it, it was right about this same time that uh, uh, two incidents relating to the perils of oral history surfaced. Mm -hmm. uh, the first was uh, a man named, Ed named Edward Daly uh, believed that he had participated in a massacre of civilians in the summer of 1950 while a member of Company H, 7th Cavalry Regiment. And you know, he received extensive publicity, went on a speaking tour, um, and it turned out that he hadn't actually even gotten to Korea until October, uh, but he had, he had heard the story of the incident so many times that he had just internalized it and had, had placed himself within it. Right. And then that turned into Bob Bateman's history of the Nogunri incident, uh, which really kind of highlights the, both the, the value and the perils of, of oral history. Now I enjoyed talking to all these veterans very, very much. Um, having deployed several times to you know, interesting situations uh, in, in the Persian Gulf and in Haiti and in, in Iraq. Uh, we had an affinity and so it was, it was, it was not hard to get them to, to speak about some things for which I had a common understanding. Mm -hmm. And so I, I used a lot of oral history but I didn't use it as the sole basis for any of the assertions that I made in my research. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it definitely does offer an additional avenue to validate some of the points that I made. One of the, the um, kind of elements, difficulties of military history and U.S. history in this period is we, we don't much think about the Korean War. It's, you know, it's called the Forgotten War, borrow that name from the War of 1812, right? So we think of the, the World War II veteran, most of whom are now dead, of course. We think of them in kind of this studs turkle good war way. Um, but, but what was the experience like with the, the veterans of Korea, particularly the veterans of Korea who were not also World War II veterans? Kind of like the eclipsed younger brother. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the World War II GI came home to accolades. You, you, they had just saved the world from tyranny uh, in ways that their fathers thought they had in 1919. But in 1945, it was unequivocal. The Americans believed that they had defeated the two greatest threats to human civilization for all time, and you know, you know, now everything in the world will be uh, the great sunlit uplands of prosperity and peace. Right. It's the end of Lord of the Rings, right? Right. Exactly. Uh, and so the American people had kind of a, a an, ex an expectation that the army would 
kind of just wither away, that we wouldn't need it anymore. And that, you know, if there was anybody who had the temerity to challenge the United States, then we had these, these, we had the Air Force and the Navy who could protect our borders and, if necessary, inflict enough uh, punishment to make any potential challenger think twice. Mm -hmm. So in the summer of 1950, when the Eighth Army goes to Korea, and they don't immediately perform the way that Third Army did in attacking from Lorraine into the Battle of the Bulge in December 1944. There's this tremendous shock and, and a recoiling from the Army and a, and, a, and a demand for answers. You know, the American public are always looking for explanations for why things go wrong. And mm -hmm. the easiest explanation is is not always the most accurate one, but it's it's often the, the most emotionally satisfying one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is the this is the birth of the infamous phrase "No more Task Force Smiths," right? Well, that the actual phrase comes from General Gordon Sullivan, uh, Army Chief of Staff in the '90s, who was overseeing uh, the implementation of the Cold War peace, the, the end of the Cold War peace dividend, um, and he was promising that under his watch. Although the army would have to reduce itself from 785,000 regular army to something along the lines of 500,000, he would do it in a way that it would, it would ensure there would be no more task force smiths. Implying that his predecessors in the late 40s had done it incorrectly. Well, I, I'm sure that's what he meant, but that's not how it came across. Because In every interpretation, that, that came to be accepted as, well, the soldiers who were in Japan in 1950 in the Eighth Army were on occupation duty. They hadn't, you know, by and large, they weren't veterans of the Second World War. They hadn't enlisted to serve. They had enlisted for adventure because they were looking for something that would help them validate their lives like their older brothers and their fathers had in the Second World War. And so when they, when they got the opportunity to really get that experience, they didn't perform well. And mm -hmm. so most people blamed the soldiers. They said, well, it's, it's their fault. And how could you do otherwise? Because the same people who won World War II are still running the Army in 1950. Right. So you can't blame MacArthur. You can't blame Eisenhower. You can't blame Bradley. Good God, you can't blame the GI General. Mm -hmm. It's not his fault. So definitely the scapegoat must lie lower down in the pecking order. And the, the decision was made that it must be the soldiers. So, and this is from what you said earlier. This is the historiography you kind of walked into when you when you right. started this research. Um, and you know, briefly, how how did you how did you adjust that narrative? Well, the the baseline narrative is is T. R. Fahrenbach's book, This Kind of War, uh, published in 1963, about the same time that the first volume of the official histories came out, and. Mm. Fahrenbach is an accomplished writer. He, he really, really tells a good story. Um, he can engage you and, and move you in ways that other authors cannot. Uh, and he was a veteran of the war, so he had supposedly unimpeachable bona fides. But it turns out that he uh, didn't get to Korea until 52. And so what he heard about how the Army had performed in 1950 was hearsay from people who had gotten, gotten it from hearsay from people who were there. And although he did go back and look at it, he didn't do the, any kind of archival research and he didn't conduct an extensive series of interviews or anything like that. He, he was writing a polemic for a specific reason mm -hmm. and the book was misinterpreted as a narrative history. And going into Vietnam too. Going right into Vietnam, which is all about 
you have to fund the force properly, and you have to get out of the way and let the generals fight the war the way we fought World War II. Because Fehrenbach was also a World War II right. Because uh, Franklin Roosevelt had nothing to do with World War II play. No, it, exactly. <laughs> one of the one of my favorite lessons when I taught the senior service college seminar was uh, a lesson on Huntington and what Samuel Huntington's book, The Soldier in the State, has how that has distorted most professional military officers' perceptions of what their roles and responsibilities are. I'm absolutely here to uh, stick pins in the cushion of Samuel Huntington. <laughs> so. uh, it's been a fascinating discussion, Dr. Hansen. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.